0: All right, we're in John chapter 9 today, but we're going to start in Jeremiah, just to throw (laughs) you. Getting kind of complacent there. I thought I'd mess with your heads. All right, so Jeremiah chapter 23, actually. So Jeremiah was sent to the nation of Israel to tell them that the destruction and captivity. that the Babylonian empire was making efforts to bring about upon them was going to happen. He's saying it's gonna happen, you're gonna fall. So day after day, week after week, for years, he calls out the sins and pleads with them to repent, to prevent that from coming, and they never do. They won't repent, so Jeremiah would actually live to see the fall of Jerusalem and the captivity of the people being carried off. So the people most responsible, who's responsible for people not believing? Well, everybody's responsible for their own self, right? But there are leaders in communities and in uh, faith communities as well as political leaders and they have an obligation to set an example and to speak the truth and encourage people. So the Bible calls them shepherds. E- but the king is called a shepherd, the priests are called shepherds and the prophets are called shepherds. They all have a responsibility to speak truth to the people so that there's no way they can avoid knowing what's right and what's wrong and they have examples to follow that's the shepherds job so he speaks to the shepherds here in chapter 23 starting in verse 1 I'm just going to read here this is how God speaking through Jeremiah <coughs> woe to the shepherds who are destroying and scattering the sheep of my pasture declares the Lord Therefore, thus says the Lord God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who are tending my people, you have scattered my flock and driven them away and have not attended to them. Behold, I'm about to attend to you for the evil of your deeds, declares the Lord. They're so useless that God says he's going to act himself after Israel is carried off into captivity, taken away. So verse three, Then I myself will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them and bring them back to their pasture. They will be fruitful and multiply. I will also raise up shepherds over them and they will tend them. And they will not be afraid any longer, nor be terrified, nor will any be missing, declares the Lord. So how's he gonna do that? Well, let's keep going. Verse five, it's by raising up the Messiah, that's how. behold days are coming declares the Lord when I will raise up for David a righteous branch so David is the stock and the branch is a descendant of his right so whenever it talks about the branch in the Old Testament that's talking about the Messiah okay (laughs) I will raise up a righteous branch and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land Verse 6, in his days Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely and his name by which he shall be called is the Lord our righteousness. So of course he eventually did come, right? God became man to shepherd his own flock. And Jesus of Nazareth was a perfect shepherd, a perfectly righteous man and he always spoke the truth and he said the things that people needed to hear. So he... Jesus was God personally come to shepherd his people as one of his people. And when Jesus came, just as in Jeremiah's day, he got zero help from those who claimed to be the shepherds, the priests, the rabbis, the political leaders got no help whatsoever. In fact, they were outwardly devoted to his destruction and they, in their hearts, they hated him. Outwardly, they also were devoted to the Lord God. But inwardly, they were motivated by self-interest, which Jesus talks about all the time. Jesus made that very clear to them, their hypocrisy, so they hated him for that. So we can go to John 9 now. So last week in John 9, we saw just how wretched these shepherds could actually be. So we looked at that amazing story, this amazing day in the life of one man, a beggar on the streets of Jerusalem. He wasn't just poor like Fandy Crosby. He was blind from birth. He had never seen a human face or a tree or the moon in the night sky. Never seen anything like that. Then everything changed dramatically because Jesus walked by. And you remember how it started. His disciples were noticing this guy and maybe they knew a little bit about him but they, they asked him why he was born blind. Who sinned? Was it him or was it his parents? That was the great theological question of the day. We went through all that last week, but what did Jesus say? Jesus said he was blind, verse three, so that the works of God might be displayed in him. And remember, Jesus took a little bit of clay from the, the soil and spit in it and made sort of a salve and put it on the man's eyes, and he said, go to the pool of Siloam and wash, and he did, and as soon as he washed that off his eyes, he, looked, he could see perfectly. That's an amazing thing, right? That is an amazing thing. For the first time he saw everything. So a whole new world was opened up for him and he came back to where he was and Jesus wasn't there anymore. He had his usual beggar spot and the people there knew who he was and Jesus wasn't there, he had moved on. So the neighbors took him to the Pharisees, remember? Because you know those are the religious leaders. If you have questions, that's where you go. and. Uh, Maybe they would help find Jesus for him because he really wanted to thank Jesus and express himself to him. Surely they would know about this great man and it's, they would ne- want to know about this incredible miracle and be all a part of it. Well, it turned out the Pharisees were a, a wall of hatred when they, when he approached them and they brought this man to them because they hated Christ and again, because he exposed them, their hypocrisy. But their version of their reason for rejecting Jesus. They wouldn't say, you know he exposes our hypocrisy. That's why they wouldn't say that. But the reason they give is in verse 16 of chapter 9. This man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. Because you know what he was doing. He scooped up a little bit of clay and sped in it. And he was making on the Sabbath. Working on the Sabbath. Hard labor. (laughs) And so that was their uh, accusation against him. So in verse 24 they say of Jesus. We know that this man is a sinner. And then the formerly blind man. Gives his epic response to that. In verse 30. Well he says. Here is an amazing thing. (laughs) That you do not know where he is from. And yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not hear sinners. But if anyone is God fearing. And does his will. He hears him. Since the beginning of time. It has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God he could do nothing. So there's a man that's been a beggar all his life who has way more theological savvy than the religious leaders of his day. He's just perfectly, perfectly rational. It's the the exact right answer. So yeah it is amazing it's amazing that they hate Jesus who did only good but that's the response of sinful men who don't want their favorite sins addressed right they get angry about it the Pharisees favorite sin was self-righteousness they wanted to be seen as righteous by people that was more important than being righteous and it was more important than telling the truth that was their favorite thing. So they looked down on other people. They didn't even see themselves as needy sinners because they were so self-righteous. So they turned on the healed man. In verse 34, they answered him, you were born entirely in sins and are you teaching us? So they put him out, which means they excommunicated him. So these shepherds kicked one of the sheep out of their community for sharing a miracle that was done in his life. Telling the truth and loving Jesus. That's why they kicked him out. The man confesses faith in Jesus as Messiah then in verse 38 it says he worshipped him. He worshipped Jesus. So the Savior welcomed gladly this man that was rejected by his own community. Rejected for his integrity. Rejected for just simply sharing the truth and sticking to it. And Jesus says in verse 39, for the judgment I came into this world so that those who do not see may see and that those who see may become blind. God will judicially harden them. So verse 40, those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to him, we are not blind too, are we? And Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say we see, your sin remains. And now we come to chapter 10. And Jesus takes this occasion to give a, so this is it's just flowing right out of chapter 9. He's giving a, a sermon, if you will, about what a true shepherd of God's people looks like. Very appropriate circumstance for this particular message. What is a shepherd and who is who is a good shepherd? They so needed to hear this. And so do we. So in verse 6 John calls this a paroimion is actually the Greek word. But it means like a, th- you know people try to translate this different way. Sometimes it, I've read translations that translates it a figure of speech. That Jesus gives a figure of speech. Um, the word parable is used sometimes or proverb. But I, I like the word illustration. So I would say he's giving them an illustration. Okay. That's the simplest way to say it. It's not strictly a parable. So Jesus describes what a real shepherd of the real sheep is like and he takes the true and good shepherd, he describes him and then he applies it to himself. So he is he is Jeremiah's branch of David that was going to be the true shepherd. So, as the fulfillment of prophecy as the son of David to shepherd God's people, he speaks now. So he's going to use his truly, truly Intro. Twice he's going to do that. So what does truly truly mean? That means wake up. This is serious stuff I'm about to say. Right? This is great truth. Important truth. And I'm glad he uses a detailed description of a shepherd because most of us don't have a whole lot of experience with sheep. But uh, so he's kind of describing what it it would be like um, in a normal shepherd's life. He's just describing a shepherd's situation. But he starts in a really interesting way. He starts with a negative because the Pharisees are standing right there. And hearing what he's saying. So he's starting with. What a shepherd isn't. So verse 1 of chapter 10. Truly truly I say to you. He who does not enter by the door. Into the fold of the sheep. But climbs up some other way. He is a thief. And a robber. This is like super obvious. Now a sheep fold is like a. Usually there is sort of a sto- stone wall. A low stone wall enclosure area. And that's where you bring your sheep. In the, in the evening to put them in there so they wouldn't wander off and so that uh, they would be protected. So that's the idea of a sheepfold. And if you see a person climbing over the wall of the sheepfold, probably that's not the shepherd. That, that's usually He usually goes in by the door. So a um, thief and a robber comes that way. They're, they're slipping in to do mischief. Either they're going to steal a sheep or do something bad. So this wall climber would not be a moral exemplar, right? He would not be a moral person. Certainly not a shepherd. A shepherd would never do that. So how does the real shepherd enter the sheepfold? Through the door, verse (laughs) 2. But he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. To him, the doorkeeper, and they would have sort of a gate guy there, he opens and the sheep hear his voice. And he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. So the sheep know the shepherd's voice. When he calls to them they know them and he even names them and they'll come to him. So when he puts forth all his own, verse 4, he goes ahead of them and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. A stranger they simply will not follow but will flee from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. So sheep actually do recognize the voice of their shepherd or the person that works with them all the time. They know this that they know that this is the guy who leads them to green pastures and to water and then back home safely right that's they know that so in many cases the sheep hold the sheep fold might hold like if it's a community a small village or something they might have one sheep fold for different families and they would all bring their sheep into the same fold so you might have a mixed in there so when the shepherd comes to the door he calls out his sheep and they come to him you know because they belong to him so that's kinda how it works frequently they would follow the voice that they know. So um, I want to show you a couple of pictures, several pictures that um, happened to us because we actually experienced this. Um, Modern sheep farming in America or sheep herding in America is like, uh, it doesn't work quite like it does in the Middle East and that part of the world. But when we were in Turkey, um, if you got a picture up there, I can't see those screens. So go ahead and put the first one up there, Ayana. Thank you. So we were visiting a, we were in Turkey and we were on a bus tour of, all the Christian sites there with all these college students and a few of us ancient people and and they were gonna show us a Roman road and it was a little bit down off the regular road so so we get down onto this Roman road which was really well preserved and Paul walked on that road you know at one time so it was kind of a big deal we were all excited Laura always wanted to stand on a Roman road that was really important to her (laughs) and these two flocks of sheep started moving towards us One from one direction and one from another direction. And there was a man leading the one and there was a woman leading the other one. And they all came and gathered there. Are we on the first one still? Yeah, so here's the man carrying his sheep. And he loved the idea because you have college students and baby lambs, right? (laughs) So of course, they wanted to hold them, and, and they were all for it. They were—he's ki- carrying the lambs over so the kids could play with them. And the next picture is the lady, and she has her her sheep there, and they're doing her thing. And going to the next one too. And so there's one of the college students that was with us. Just the lady. I'm sorry. Just the lady. The oh. oh, she's not there. <laughs> huh? I was one back. <laughs> okay. <laughs> So, do you see the lady in the blue coat there? Yes. Yeah. She's sitting right there. So, <laughs> so and then the next one, here's a, see boys like sheep too. So, they, they So anyway, we've got all these pictures. And then let's go with the last one too. So here's the, here's the sweet lady. I mean this, she looks like, she's like a classic person, you know. It's like a perfect picture of this glorious woman. So, what happened was their sheep got all mixed together. The kids are playing with their sheep. They're going through all this stuff. And then it's time to go. And he goes off in his direction and she goes off in her direction. And they call their sheep. And guess what? They divide out and they go, they go follow the voice of their shepherd. That's exactly what they do. Okay, you can take those down. Oh, you got it. Okay. So um, it was just an amazing thing to actually see that biblical idea uh, in, in, in life, you know, how that happens. So Jesus uses that very illustration and um, the people hearing him didn't get what he was talking about. So verse 6 it says, this figure of speech Jesus spoke to them and they did not understand what those things were which he had been saying to them. So, you know, it's an illustration but they don't get what the connection is yet, right? That's okay because he's gonna explain it, right? I should say first the sheepfold here um, in the illustration is the nation of Israel that's what that's kind of how he's identifying it here sometimes people read that and if you read that in isolation you're thinking oh that's heaven he's talking about that's the sheepfold. that's where we're going but that's not really the context here in which I'll show you in a little bit why that's true but anyway remember Jesus first came first to Israel he actually says in Matthew 15 24 I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel that's what he said that's what he came for that was his job he was the promised Messiah so he's Israel's Messiah coming in fulfillment of all the promises that were made he's the Messiah prophesied over um, uh, in all the prophets there all over and over again so many prophecies about him and he offers himself as Israel's messiah his promised the promised one he's sent by god and he says that over and over in john's gospel we've already seen that many times already in the previous chapters he's sent he's the sent one so when he speaks the truth the sheep will hear his voice and they will follow him as uh, verse 3 says So now in the illustration, Jesus identifies himself in two different elements here. First, that door that goes into the sheepfold. He's the door. So verse 7, Jesus said to them again. So now he's explaining the illustration. Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. Now, that's the third of seven I am statements that are made in John's gospel. Two of them are actually in this text. So in chapter 6, he was the bread of life. I am the bread of life. In chapter 8, I am the light of the world. And now he's calling himself the door. So in verse 3, he calls his sheep by name and he leads the sheep out. That's the idea, out of the sheepfold. Out from what? Well, in this case, the sheepfold is there's a lot of thieves and robbers in there. That got over the wall. That's really the idea here. So um, where did they come from? Well they climbed over the wall because they were not sent by God because they're bad shepherds or false shepherds or wicked shepherds. They don't have the interests of the sheep in mind at all. So that's the state that Jesus found Israel in. Full of Pharisees and uh, the high priest and all of their followers were not true shepherds of Israel. They had the position without the passion and desire to serve God by leading them properly. They've been leading people astray for a long time. So verse 8, all who came before me are thieves and robbers. But the sheep did not hear them. So the true believers in Israel would have seen what was going on and rejected that. And they when the true shepherd shows up, they turn to him and turn away from the pretenders. So who are those who came before Jesus? Well, he might be talking about the priests and the scribes and the Pharisees, these guys who had taken a, a vibrant Bible-based faith and turned it into a lot of self-interest and rule-keeping and self-righteousness and all of that. So, um, but that. so he could be referring to them, but many scholars also think he's referring to false messiahs. There was a plethora of false messiahs back in those days. In fact over a hundred years before Jesus there were false messiahs rising up and either they would claim to be the messiah or some rabbi would decide that this guy is a messiah because they were going to knock off whoever the enemies were at the time whether it was the Greeks or the Romans or or wherever it was going to be and they always rebels, you know, revolutionaries, freedom fighters is what they would call. And they were going to establish an independent state of Israel. And that had been going on for a really long time before Jesus came. And they often proclaimed themselves to be messiahs or somebody else called them the messiah. In fact, in Acts chapter 5, at the end of the chapter, Gamaliel is in the council, the great Sanhedrin, the great council of the Jewish leaders. And they're talking about what to do with Jesus. And he says, you know what? Let's just wait. Not, let's not really bother them right now. Let's just wait. That's his counsel. In fact, he says, this is Acts 5:36. I'll just read it for you. He goes, Some time ago, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a group of about 400 men joined up with him, but he was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census. The census, that's probably when Jesus was born. And drew away some people after him. He too perished, and all those who followed him were scattered. Thieves and robbers, Right? Violent men, violent men, false messiahs, making big promises and and never succeeding and getting anywhere. So those were the false messiahs. So it's very possible Jesus referring to those kind of characters, maybe all of these people, the religious leaders, as well as these false messiahs. But in the Old Testament, kings and priests and prophets are all called shepherds. So they all have this shepherding responsibility So political as well as religious leaders had an obligation to shepherd God's people well. Israel was a theocratic nation. God ruled that nation. It was chosen, it was a divinely created nation, an appointed nation, and ruled nation, and they were his under-shepherds. They were to rule under the Lord and do right by the Lord in shepherding his people, right? But they didn't do it. So whoever he's referring to here, Jesus does explain in verse 9 and 10 how... He is the door, what he's talking about there. So verse 9, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved, he says. And will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But I came that they may have life and have it abundantly so he's the door to salvation so in the illustration he enters the fold as the shepherd and he leads his sheep out out of this dead religion they've been raised in into life an abundant life so he's talking about a true spiritual relationship with God there so in the illustration he's leading them to life so think about doors for a minute like there's a door what does that door do? Well, it separates us from what's outside, so doors have a a separation job. That one is locked, so if you're outside, you can't get in it, so it secures people. But also, if you open the door, and somebody said that, it's a a way of access, right? That's how you come in here. All of you came in here through the door, I noticed the windows, I was watching, nobody came in through the (laughs) windows. y'all came in through the doors so Jesus is the door he's the access he's the way to life to an abundant life so we're talking about becoming God's child through the Lord Jesus and what he did John chapter 1 verse 12 if you recall we were there a long time ago as many as received him to them he gave the right to become children of God even to those who believe in his name so Jesus is the door to a relationship a father son relationship with the creator you become God's child we go through him and we have open access to our father in heaven anytime all the time that's what he accomplished for us that's what he brought to us life is never the same if you come through the door if you come through Jesus your life will be dramatically changed you'll have an abundant life now abundant life doesn't mean riches and lands and all of those that's not what he's talking about you'll know God you'll have a relationship with the living God your creator because Christ opens the door through his sacrifice and he loves us so much he invites us in that's that's what we're talking about by abundant would you rather have riches or have a relationship with the living God Of course. So when he talks abundance, that's what he's talking about. This relationship with God. He doesn't promise material things to us. If he gives them to you, great. Use them for him. So what he brings about is primarily um, this relationship idea. What did the Pharisees bring? What did the thieves and robbers bring? Rules and regulations. You can be right with God by doing this. You can be right with God by doing this. And look at us because we do it perfectly. Just pay attention to what we're doing. And do the kind of things we do. Honor us. Now look, it's not that there aren't rights and wrongs and there aren't rules. Uh, There's a morality, obviously, right? In fact, there's a higher morality in following Jesus than what the Pharisees and those people were talking about. There's a righteous path, and we're supposed to walk that path. That's the fruit of a new life. That we have in Him. So you go through the door to have a relationship with God, and out of that relationship becomes a, a deep and profound awareness. It's all in the Sermon on the Mount of how we're supposed to live, and we want to live it. Not because we're afraid of what God's going to do to us if we don't, but because we love Him. He loves us. We honor Him because we want to. It's a relationship that we have with our Father. So Jesus doesn't point to the door is not a philosophy. It's not a practice. Well, you do these things, and then those things. Then you're supposed to do those things, and the, the God God will honor you. He'll He'll. It's not that. It's not a religion. It's the door to life. It's the door to an abundant life. Most of us are familiar with what the Lord tells His apostles later in John, John chapter 14, verse 6. I am the way the truth, and the life, right? Nobody comes to the Father but through me. So he's the very source of eternal life. So to be a Christian is to walk with Jesus, to let him lead us as our good shepherd. He is the good shepherd. We know we are secure in his love and we live out that love that he's poured out in us towards other people. That's it. That's the abundant life right there. That's why forgiveness is so much easier for us because we have been forgiven. You know, it's kind of hard not, not to forgive somebody else when you realize how much God has forgiven you. So we don't really need a rule to forgive. It's We have one. Jesus tells us to forgive. That's a rule, but we are eager to do that. We're already predisposed to do that because of the forgiveness that we have through Christ from our Heavenly Father. We realize our own unworthiness and how can we hold back the love of Christ To others through us if he's been so good and merciful to us. So Jesus is the door to salvation. And he's the door to new life. So this idea of the door then is the first element that he applies to himself in the illustration. Now he does it a second time. He takes another element in the illustration and applies it to himself. And this one, this is the heart of the Christian faith right here. And this is where Christianity differs from every other religion in the world. Verse 11. I am the good shepherd. So now he's describing himself that way. He's the door. And he is the good shepherd. The good shepherd. Does what? Lays down his life. For the sheep. That's the fourth. I am statement. In John's gospel. Out of the seven. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd. Lay da- lays down his life for the sheep. He loves the sheep. So much. He will gladly. Lay down his life. For them. So. So after 1,500 years of the law of Moses, where sheep are brought into the temple and sacrificed, their throats cut and their blood spilled and their bodies burned. Now, Jesus is announcing that the good shepherd is the, sh- is the one that's gonna lay down his life. Up until now, we've been taking the life of the sheep and he says the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Radical transformation here. Of course he's talking about the cross, the place where Jesus will be put cruelly to death while people mock him and laugh at him and he'll be dying for the sheep right there. It's a cruel death and slow, right? So think about the cross. Why is he dying? He's dying for us. He's dying for his own. He's bearing our sins 1 John 2 says for the sins of the world. He died for the sins of the world. So yes, he is the judge serving our sentence, being punished for us. He gave the condemnation on our sin and then he came to be one of us and pay the price of our sin. He's both. He's the judge and, and dies the death of the offender, if you will. He doesn't slink away the good shepherd cares. He defends. The good shepherd rescues. The good shepherd risks his own life for the sheep. He, he stands up to wolves and lions and thieves and criminals and all those kind of people. Now you've got paid sheep watchers too, right? Because the shepherd can't be out there every second. So sometimes he's got under shepherds. And those are people that he pays. And he, stand, he stands up to the wolves and lions. But what do hired hands do, right? When a wolf comes and you're paying him like McDonald's wages. (laughs) what, what What does he do? Well verse 12. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd. He doesn't own the sheep. He's just working out there. Who is not the owner of the sheep. Sees the wolf coming and he leaves the sheep and runs away. The wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and is not concerned about the sheep. This must have been a common issue back in the day. You know. Oh yeah. my guy ran away again. I lost three sheep. <laughs> so Israel's shepherds had been hired hands. That's how they acted. They did not take care of God's flock. They were using the flock not protecting the flock. We could talk a long time about hired hands in ministry. The same today. Same today. For some. Shepherding the flock is just a job. And that's, that's true then and that's true now. It's just a job. It's a way to make a living. He or she these days. Depending on the particular shepherd we're thinking of. Don't always think about honoring and glorifying God. That's not why they're in the business. I've actually heard pastors talk about the business. You know. that's just my business. I try not to use that language. There's a lot of wrong motives to be in pastoral ministry. One of them is financial. Uh, We see that in really crazy ways in the mega world where pastors literally get salaries equivalent to CEOs and that should not happen. That should not be allowed. Um, But we live in really strange times. But you know popes and cardinals in the middle ages they lived like kings. The have fabulous amounts of wealth and property that they owned and, and of course you got monks working the property you don't have to pay them anything they're devoured to poverty right so um, opulent wealth but you see that in Protestant princes now you know in certain locations there but in the old days if you talk about more normal middle class life in the old days in Europe I- especially church ministry was a patronage job for like second and third sons you know what a second son is? in, in uh, that, that world, European world? The first son inherits everything. The second son, you've gotta find something for him. <laughs> so he goes and does something else. He goes into the army, or he goes into the church. These are all options that are open to him. So it's not like he's called, it's like God hasn't put it on his heart to minister. It's like, well, I'm like not gonna have my inheritance, so what kind of jobs are out there? Well, the military, I could get killed. So um, <laughs> the church, that's, that's one idea. So, um, have you ever seen Sense and Sensibility, the, the Jane Austen film, the movie version of her, of her book, early 1800s kind of period. So, she has her, the hero of the story, the main lead guy, um, he talks about his career options to Eleanor, who's the, the, his love interest, and he says this, quote, I always preferred the church, but that is not smart, smart enough for my mother, she prefers the army. But that is a great deal too smart for me. And so Eleanor asks him, she says, well, would you stay in London? And he goes, I hate London. No peace. A country living is my ideal. A small parish where I might do some good. Keep chickens and give very short sermons. A nice life, a little bit of work, maybe do some good. Sermons that require no effort to put together. That's a higher that's a hired hand right there in ministry. That's what he's talking about here, not a shepherd. It's a good job. It's a good, secure job. Period. And in our day, we don't really have that kind of patronage system, especially in the United States, because we're a free people. But still, ministry can take place for pay, I mean, uh, or other things. Some people go into the ministry to do social work. They think they're going to solve the world's problems, so they're not interested in spiritual leadership. They're interested in this world leadership. Or they learned an ideology in college they feel like they need to give to everybody so they become a minister so people can speak to them. Or they have a position where some people are in ministry because they can stand up here like I am and you're out there like you am and I can tell you my opinions about everything going on in the world. And you have to listen to me. (laughs) And pay me. (laughs) Whatever the topics of the day are. Some, even more nefarious I think, delight in exercising authority over other people's lives. That's their real purpose. I read an article about narcissists one time and what professions they preferred. Ministers was pretty high on that list, you know. Doctors was another one, <laughs> but, um, but it's perfect. The pastorate is perfect for that, for a narcissist because you not only have the authority to exercise over people, God is standing behind you and you can use his authority to manipulate people and and take advantage of them and tell them whatever you want to do, you know. Narcissists are actually drawn to ministry because it gives them a, the power over others with God's backing. That's how they think about it. So there's a lot of possible motivations, but the Good Shepherd has the well-being of the sheep as his first order reality that's his primary interest that stands over his personal preferences his desires his personal interests his financial situation and even his safety that's what Jesus is saying all, all of Christ's ministers have to follow him in this idea the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep he has to be willing to do that he will feed the flock and protect the flock at all costs that's what he's talking about Now, other than Christ, all human shepherds, like me, are sinners too, right? So we have that aspect of it. So we do it imperfectly, but the great motivation of anyone in ministry has to be the spiritual well-being of the sheep. That's what has to be there. The hired man, like the Pharisees and the priests in Jesus' day, had different priorities, different interests. He just doesn't regard himself as a servant of the flock, He regards himself as better than the flock. And he likes the honors. That's how a Pharisee lived. How different is the good shepherd as he cares for his fold? So Jesus says in Luke uh, 22, 27, I am among you as one who serves. And that's what you look for in a shepherd. That's a good shepherd. Let's go on to verse 14 here, back in John 9. I am the good shepherd and I know my own and my own know me. Even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Now that's an amazing statement. You can see how intimately he loves his sheep. Jesus has a deep personal interest in the sheep. He knows them intimately, not casually, not from a distance. And Jesus suggests that this knowing is actually a reflection of the way the Father and the Son know each other. That's what, that's what amazes me about that. He makes that comparison. The way that Jesus, the incarnate son of God, has a relationship with the Father, that's the kind of relationship he's talking about that we can have with the Father. I'm the good shepherd and I know my own and my own know me. Even as the Father knows me and I know the Father. Even as, in the same way, that mean, that's what that means, in the same way. Obviously not as fully as Jesus and the Father have a relationship, but truly, and I think the the aspect of it, that's key here, that's what he's talking about is it's a personal relationship. That's the kind of relationship he has with the Father. It's person to person, and that's the kind of relationship we are to have with the Lord Jesus Christ, person to person. Person to person knowledge, not abstract knowledge, not just information, it's a relationship. J.C. Ryle, the great bishop commentator of the Bible, he wrote this. He said, Christ knows all his believing people. Their names, their families, their dwelling places, their circumstances, their private history, their experience, their trials. With all these things, Jesus is perfectly acquainted. There's not a thing about the least and lowest of them with which he is not familiar The children of this world may not know Christians and may count their lives folly but the good shepherd knows them thoroughly. And wonderful to say though he knows them he does not despise them. That's the Savior we have. That's our good shepherd. That's our Christ. He knows you. He loves you. He laid down his life for you. And really that's all you need to know. That's the heart of it. That's the heart of it. Make knowing him your life's highest goal because he knows all about you. So know him. Come to know him. You can only do that through prayer and worship and getting to know him. Don't just walk through the world as a a kind of a Christian. Know who you're worshiping. Know who is there with you. Pray to him. Speak to him. Follow him. Let him work in your life. Make knowing him your highest good okay now the next few verses contain some really big ideas that deserve a very close look so we'll pick it up there next week (laughs) verse 16 okay so he says in verse 16 I have other sheep which are not of this fold and I must bring them also who would that be Hmm. (laughs) we'll find out next time okay let's pray Lord Jesus you are the good shepherd so let us follow your voice as you call to us Let us trust in the safety and security that you provide for us and let us by following you live this abundant life, this intimate relationship with you. An abundant life not measured in things but in joy and peace, holiness, purpose, service. We ask all this in your name. Amen.